Well, good, good morning, Boker Tov, everyone. Welcome to our brand new week of Torah study with the Aliyah Day. We are in Parashah Noach, and uh, today is uh, theoretically the first and second uh, Aliyot of Parashah Noach, which is going to begin on page uh, 30 or 31 of the Chumash. Parasha Noach, the first Aliyah, is chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, and beginning with verse 9. And it goes until uh, the end of chapter 6, which is verse 22. The second Aliyah would begin on verse, excuse me, chapter 7 and verse 1 until um, uh, verse uh, 16. So chapter 7, verse uh, 1 through 16 is the second Aliyah. Today we're going to be focusing on the first Aliyah and some insights with that um, <clears throat> in terms of our study today, which I have titled, Know Them uh, by Their Fruit. We're going to be looking into some insights. So Tadarabah, glad that everybody is here. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. It was a wonderful Shabbat. It was a wonderful um, time of new beginning and uh, a wonderful Shabbat Breshit. And I'm glad and very thankful to have everyone. Remember, uh, think good and it will be good. Amen. Let's dive into our insights this morning as we look at this some, some notes from this uh, parasha Noach and what Hashem should want to so, should show us. The parasha, the sidra, it's another name for parasha, basic, uh, by the way, is sidra. You'll hear this word sometimes. The reason I bring this up is because in the, uh, the insights book that I'm using, it actually refers to the, uh, the parasha as the sidra, samak dalad race, sidra. Um, sidra and parasha are synonymous. So you might hear this in your wanderings about uh, Judaism, a Sidra, and you might wonder, what's the difference between a Sidra and a Parasha? And the answer is really nothing. The Parasha and the Sidra are the same thing. So in our first Sidra here, we read, Ele toldot noach, noach ish zadik. This is a very profound statement, actually, although on the surface it seems like it's just basically telling a story. First and foremost, we have to understand. We also we like to point out because of uh, of of the errant teaching that so many folks have been um, exposed to. We like to point out where there is grace in the Torah, which is kind of a uh, tongue-in-cheek thing to say because grace is inherent in the law of Moses. It's quite the contrary. Quite to the contrary of what people are uh, have been told and led to believe their almost their entire spiritual lives, is that grace did not come on the scene until the first century with the advent of the Mashiach, which of course is ridiculous. It's absurd. If anybody spent five minutes in critical thought about that, they would realize how uh, how how utterly uh, inconceivable that is. Nevertheless, we have to point it out. So there's. There is a grace in the Torah, and one of the allusions to this uh, is in the story of Noach. Why? Because Noach, if you look at the word or the name Noach backwards, it is Chain. Chain 
is the word for grace. So this entire story really is about the grace of God. So Ele todot Noach, Noach ish zadik. These are the offspring of Noach. Noach was a righteous man. We're going to come to this in a second um, as we're looking at this. But it should say, as Kli Yakar notes, it says here, Ele todot Noach. These are the descendants of Noach. So with that statement in the Holy Torah, one would expect that the next sentence or next phrase should include the names of his children. If the Torah is going to say, Ele Noach, then you would say, these are the generations of Noah. Shem, Ham, Japheth. That's what you would expect. But that's not what the Torah says. And everything that the Torah says is extremely precise. This is very important for us to understand. This is not... Uh, 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 you know, uh, just any book. This is a holy book. It's of divine origin. So when it says, Why does it begin with saying, These are the offspring or the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Why does it say that? Why does it start with the statement of the children? So it says, He cites a Midrash, which quotes the verse in Proverbs 11.30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, which the sages apply to Noah. For he did not die until he saw the world repopulated and 70 nations descended from his loins. Yet his righteousness is recorded as his offspring. This is where we, we, we come to the title of today's uh, Shur, which is, Know them by their fruit. It says, for the sequence of the verse is, these are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Therefore, his righteousness is his primary offspring. Rashi, to this point, Noach, Ish, Zadik, says, Rashi alternatively uh, uh, alternately, excuse me, comments that he is described as, quote, a righteous man before his offspring are named to teach us that good deeds are the real progeny of the righteous. Now, this is an important life lesson for us because our true offspring, the offspring that we produce, that has lasting consequence and really is that to which we give birth ultimately is not, as some people think, our literal offspring, but rather our good deeds and who we are. This is indicative of, the, of, of why the Torah says, Ele todot noach, noach ish zadik. These are the, this is the offspring of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. It begins to say this is why there is a favor given to Noah. This is why Noah is mentioned. This is why he's going to become the father of, of the human race, just like Adam, is because his primary offspring was righteousness. That his this is how you know Noah, by his fruit. Now, 
it's it can it's a little it could be a little deceiving because Rashi is saying here that our good deeds are the progeny of the righteous, and that's true. You know them by their fruit. How can you tell if somebody is really um, a righteous person because the way they dress, because the way they daven, because the way they talk, uh, etc. No, you know them because of what they do. And the sages have pointed out, especially when it comes to Musar, is that when we look at the attributes of Hashem, as I'm so, I'm so I so love to dive into that portion in the book of Exodus and chapter 34 where Moshe asked God to show him his glory. And as it turns out, God's glory is not what we often think it is. It's not thunder and lightning and great miracles. God's glory is his attributes. The fact that he's merciful, merciful, abundantly merciful, compassionate, you know, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. These are the things that Hashem is known for. That is, in fact, His glory, which means that that should be our glory. Our glory should not be uh, in, in our skills. Our glory is not, if we're a good musician, it's not that we're a rock star. If we're a good public speaker, it's not that, you know, we we dazzle people with our, our articulation. <clears throat> um, if we are... Uh, a teacher. It's not that we are so we're known for our skill in communicating wisdom, but rather we should be known for the fact that we are just like Hashem. So if you're wondering, well, what should be, what should my midot be? What should my fruit be? How should people know me? Well, first of all, um, we have to be imitators of Hashem, and therefore we have to begin to say that we are merciful merciful, abundantly merciful. <laughs> That's when, when Hashem says, listen, these are my attributes. I am Hashem, Hashem, God. The sages bring down that those first three names indicate that he's merciful before we sin, he's merciful after we sin, and God is a name that means abundantly merciful. Abundantly merciful. As an aside... There is, and I again, as as many of you know, I like to I I like to speak frankly. My intention is never to be uh, inflammatory. My intention is always um, to be educational and lib and to help people get liberated. <clears throat> there is a cult that has really nothing to do with Judaism or or the Torah or anything, but there's a cult that exists out there. And it's very, very prolific, and it's it's the sacred name movement. Now, a lot of times, this cult is kind of um, uh, mixed into another uh, group called Hebrew Roots, which really is a, a non-Jewish-based uh, group that also has little to do with Judaism or Torah. But, but I digress. But in this cult of sacred name, they're the ones who insist that you have to pronounce the, the divine name. Of course, none of them are Jews. Not one of them are. Um, they None of them can speak, read, or write Hebrew. Um, they don't know anything about anything, uh, but yet they couldn't order a cup of coffee in Hebrew, but yet they know how to pronounce the divine name, which no one knows how to pronounce. And even if we did, when, when we did 2,000 years ago, the only person who uttered it was the high priest 
And that was only in, within the temple courts. And every time he said it, he whispered it. And when the people heard it, they fell on their faces and said, Blessed be the glorious the name of his glorious kingdom forever and ever. So that's how holy it is. Uh, but now we want to say it. We want to print it on T-shirts, put it on ball caps, throw it in our dirty laundry and all that kind of stuff. It's ridiculous. But one of the things that this cult says is that you have to pronounce it. This is why if you ever get on a uh, website or you're listening to a YouTube or anything like that, and the people are using the Y word for God, you know, Yah something, Yahuwah, Huadua, something like that, or they're, or they're pronouncing the name of, of the Messiah, whose name is Yeshua, and they're trying to say it's Yahshua or something ridiculous like that, just know that you are in that cult environment. I mean, again, that's just, it is what it is. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be inflammatory and for, there's people out there that are militant about this, but I need to tell you because I need to make sure that you don't fall into a trap and it wouldn't do me any favors to not say it just because I want to try to make somebody not mad at me. But this is the reality. Okay. But one of the things they say is you're not allowed to say Hashem which is absurd. You're not allowed to say Adonai. You're not allowed to say Lord, as if Lord is some type of evil word, which is ridiculous because in, he, in the Bible, Hashem is referred to as Adon and Adonai. Adon means Lord. Adonai means my Lord. And you're not allowed to say God, like they teach that the word God is pagan. Okay, this is where I was really going with all of that. My contention is this, why is such a cult, which by the way that I mentioned has no Jews in it, why would such a cult want to prevent people from saying the word God? Better question is this, why does the Satan, because that's who runs that ultimately, why does the Satan not want people to say the word God? Nothing wrong with God. It's in Hebrew, it's El. In fact, the word Almighty God is El Elyon. Uh, uh, you know, um, or er, that's a, a everlasting God. Mighty God is El Gibor, right? These are El is a is a word. It's God. But more importantly, why would the Satan who influences that organization not? or disorganization, really. But why would, would the Satan not want you to say God? And the, here's the answer. Because the word God, from the Hebrew Jewish understanding, is a word that means literally superabundant mercy, superabundant compassion, which these groups are not filled with. And you and I need Hashem to be super abundantly compassionate to us, and we need to be super abundantly compassionate to other people, which is why that word is stricken from the vocabulary of such people. Isn't that interesting? Think about it. If you're no longer allowed to say God because somehow that's pagan, which is absurd, but if that's what you've been taught, then you are naturally removing from your tree the fruit of superabundant mercy. Not only are you removing it from who you are, you're naturally no longer calling upon it with respect to Hashem. 
So we talk to Hashem, 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 mercy, mercy, God, please help me. When we say, God, please help us, what are we saying? We're saying, deity who is super abundantly merciful, please help me. But you're no longer allowed to say God anymore. So now guess what? You know, you have to ex nay the rex nay of the uh, super abundant mercy. Isn't that interesting? This is why how I want you to think. This is how I want you to think. I want you to to be analytical and critical in your thinking so that when you when you encounter these absurd and ridiculous ideas you you take a step back and say why are we fighting against this what's the real motive behind it and when you dive into it you find the real motive as i just explained to you it all comes back to know them by their fruit You'll notice that these groups, incidentally, are normally extremely legalistic. Extremely legalistic. Which, by the way, is what the Sadducees were in antiquity. The Sadducees who ignored the Oral Torah, who said the Pharisees were crazy, and it, it got away from the, the, the Oral Torah. Josephus writes that the people hated them with a passion. Why? Because they were they were word of God only. What's the problem with that? They were legalists. They were legalists. And their and their ultimate goal actually was to get people not to follow the Torah. Which seems kind of crazy, right? But it's true. Why? Because you can't follow the Torah if you're word of God only. You really can't. You know why? Because there's not enough information there, which is why the oral Torah is necessary. Which is why in these groups that are word of God only, there's nothing but confusion because everybody's doing their own thing because everybody's interpreting it for themselves. And then if you're not doing what they're doing and you're doing something else, then they're going to berate you because, you know, it gives birth to legalism. Contrary to popular belief, Pharisaical Judaism gave birth to liberty. Why? Because the Psalm 133 says, where there is unity... In other words, we're all doing the same thing. That is where the Spirit of God rests. And where the Spirit of God is, there is liberty. But where there's disunity, guess what? There's no Spirit of God. If there's no Spirit of God, there's what? A lack of what? Shalom. So it says, Malbin notes that throughout Scripture, the term Zadik, righteous, encompasses exemplary social conduct. While the term tamim, perfect, means that someone acts without thought of personal gain or aggrandizement. So this is, of course, in relationship to, it, to the Torah that says, Ele noach noach ish zadik tamim chaya bedorotav. He was a perfectly righteous man in his generations. Now, so again, a righteous one who has a righteous person, a zadik, is someone who has perfect social conduct. Someone who is tamim means that they do this without thought of personal gain or aggrandizement. In other words, a person is righteous just because of righteousness' sake. He goes on to say, "For a person may deal justly to gain honor or a good reputation, but if if this incentive is removed, he may change his behavior." Okay. <clears throat> this is why you have people that, you know, act holy and so on, but they're only doing that because they're trying to gain something. A a ish zadik tamim, a perfectly righteous person, Malbin brings down, 
acts purely out of a love for righteousness, or you could say a love of, for God. So our uh, motive when we are living for God, this is another important thing, our uh, motive when we live for God should be simply because we love Hashem. It, it cannot be and should not be to appease anybody or to make them want to like us. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a very, very important thing I need for you to get down in your soul. Because the Rebbenstein and I were just talking about this recently, that <clears throat> what happens to people when they come into this way of life? And it's very, very subtle because it's a fine line. It's one of those things where the lines can get blurred very easily. But let me just go ahead and just blurt it out, and then I'll try to clean it up. A lot of times what happens with people is they come into this way of life, and they lose their focus. And they start to become enamored with Jews and Judaism. Now, having said that, I am a Jew, and I practice Judaism. And I love it. And it's wonderful. And it's a great way of life, and I'm you know, I enjoy it. It's exciting. It's fun. It's, it's deep. I mean, it's deep, very deep. Okay. However, it's, it's important that we don't lose our focus because sometimes what people do is they come in and they, they start to live this way alive and then they want to start impressing people. Like I want to be a quote, authentic Jew. And so I'm going to, and you just, you just kind of, you, you, you end up Sometimes I think getting into your mind that you're just doing something so that you will make other Jews understand that you're legitimate. And therefore your focus becomes on pleasing men. And there's all kinds of pitfalls to that. For one thing, Orthodox Judaism is not monolithic. So whereas you might appear authentic to one group of Orthodox Jews, another group of Orthodox Jews may not think so because of this, that, or the other. And it just becomes a mess. But the, the main way to avoid this, this is, this, is, this is where I want you to understand. The main way to avoid that is, number one, you have to live this life because of Mashiach Yeshua, number one. He's the one that brought you to the dance. He's the one that introduced you to this. He's the one that reached out and called you and brought you and saved you from the Mari pit. And you're therefore doing this because you love God. You're not trying to please man or impress them or make yourself seem like some big Zadik or whatever. All right? You're doing this because of love of God. And that's how your fruit will remain pure. That's where you will become not just an Ish Zadik, but an Ish Zadik Tamim. You're not doing it for any type of self-aggrandizement or some kind of personal gain. It's just like someone in my in my shul told me today, uh, told me, excuse me, on Shabbat, everything I'm doing, I'm doing just because I love God, that's it, and I ask him for my help. That is a, that is an ish zadik tamim. That is someone who is just doing it because they love God. They're not trying to be impressive. They're not trying to uh, be, quote, legit. Their motive is not, well, I do this because that's what Jews do. That's not their motive. Their motive is, I do this because of Hashem and what he's done for me. And when we have that as a motive, that's where our hearts remain pure. Now, what does it mean to be a man? We're talking about this word ish. 
The word ish itself means man. How do we be, how do we be men? Now, to a man who's hearing me now, you know, the insinuation is as obvious. How do we men, how do we be men? But also to women, because women are also have man in them, so to speak, Adam. Isn't it interesting, just as an aside, just as a, a scientific aside, you know, God created man initially, and the man and women, men and women were, uh, you know, one unit, and until God took man, a woman out of man. But even there's reminiscence of that today, because scientifically, men, the primary, our primary hormone is testosterone, and for women, the primary hormone is estrogen. But it's interesting because the uh, the male and the female have a little bit of both. Women have a little testosterone, and men have a little estrogen. And clearly, as as we get older, those uh, hormones have can have a tendency to get out of balance, which is why you know things have to be done to keep them in balance. And so on and so on and so forth. The point I'm trying to make is, is it isn't interesting, even scientifically, there's a little bit of female in the male, a little bit of male in the female still. But I digress. So it says here, the term ish in scripture is a designation of high honor. So to be called ish is a very high, you're a man. It is God's testimony because Moses and Boaz and David and Mordecai are all referred to in scripture as ish. Because they were people or, or, or persons of exemplary character. Noah stood the supreme test of manliness by living an almost solitary, uh, uh, living as, excuse me, an almost solitary righteous person for 600 years in contrast to all of the mess around him. In other words, Biblical definition of manliness is remaining righteous even in the midst of unrighteousness. That's what it means to be a man. But the world has often said that to be a man, you have to, you know, do what other men do. But in actual fact, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. To be a man means that even if you're the only one standing alone for God, then you're the one standing for God. That's what it means to be an ish, to be a man. To be a man says, I don't care that all the other men are doing this and being, uh, you know, wicked. I am going to be the man who stands up and does something different. That's what it means to be a man. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Because in combat... Uh, all the other men are cowering behind rocks, and one guy storms the machine gun nest and saves everybody. And everybody applauds them. They give them the Congressional Medal of Honor, and they say, now that's the man. Isn't that what we say? That's the man. Why? Because he was the one who stood up and did something extraordinary. And a man does something extraordinary. And when it comes to biblical things, being extraordinary means being godly. That's what it means to be a man. To get the Medal of Honor in the scripture, from a scriptural point of view, is to be the guy who isn't being a Rasha, who isn't being an evil person. That's what it means to be a man. 
to conquer anger, to conquer desire. How about this? How about to come back from the ashes of destruction? That's what it means to be a man. You know, um, having lived the way I live, I would never follow somebody who, and I mean this with all honesty, I would never make somebody my leader who's never been through it. Because that that's uh, that's not a leader. That's that's somebody who's, uh, I don't know what that is, but it's not a leader. So a leader is somebody who's been through it, fallen on their face, suffered, and but then got up. You know, in the Marine Corps, you weren't allowed to um, ask your men to do something you've never done. It, you, you can't. You just can't do that. Marine Corps is very, very big on leadership. Leadership means leading. That means you've been there, done that, and you're asking men to do something you yourself have already done. So if you're trying to lead people to, hey, you know, when you fall, get up. Well, if you've never fallen and never had to get up, then what do you, you're asking them to do something you yourself have never done. So to be a man means that you've been through it and you persevered. And too often in religious circles, we want our leaders to be perfect and who have never done anything. You know, they don't have any kind of testimony because they just, they woke, they, they, they exited the womb in righteousness and perfection. They lived a life of perfection and they're teaching us today having never done anything other than perfection. It, religiously, that's what we want, but how is that helpful? And yet, on the other hand, we say about Messiah, Messiah, what makes him awesome is he's a man who came here and suffered like us. See, again, it's one of these contradictions in our way of thinking. We, we, we continue to wonder why we're so confused. Because we're not stable in our thinking. We're not thinking it through. You want somebody who, I want somebody who, who was running the race, fell flat on their face, but then got up and, and won the race. Or is winning the race, right? Why? Because that's me. And I want to, I want to be shown how to do that. Exactly. Because I don't, contrary to popular belief, I do not walk on water. When I go swimming, I have to swim. I have to tread water. Now, some of you walk on water and you're a buzzkill at a pool party, but the rest of us actually have to swim. Now, one final thing here as we're wrapping up. There's some other things we'll get to tomorrow, but this one says, and this is something that people don't think about, because there's some comments, if you look at the commentary, there are some things about Noah. Was if he had lived, if he had lived in other generations, would he have been righteous, etc.? I think the answer is yes, and one of the reasons for that, as has been commented here by Lechachtov and the Barbanel, and also Ralbog, it says here that Noah's life. People don't think about this, but Noah's life um, actually spanned many generations. And yet he maintained his level of righteousness throughout all of those generations. 
and he continued to be distinguished throughout all of those generations. And in fact, um, people don't realize this, but Abraham was 58 years old when Noah passed away. In fact, Abraham himself spent time learning in the yeshiva that Noah and his son Shem uh, ran as a Torah institute. That's where Abraham learned how to follow Torah. So even throughout, think, now just, just wrap your head around that for a moment. That Noah, excuse me, that Abraham was 58 years old when Noah passed away, and yet Noah maintained his righteousness. And we often get on Noah's case because, you know, he, he left the ark, he planted a vineyard, he got drunk, and everybody just loses their mind over it, as if you never gotten drunk before. Yeah. How many people have loved the Lord and followed God? And no, it's, it's really a sin to get drunk. It is, actually. Um, and yet you went to a Purim party or you went to this party or that wedding or this bris malah, and you had a little bit too much wine to drink, and frankly, you got a little bit sauced. And of course, we brush that off and say, I'm sorry, that, that was a little bit too much. I, I should have stopped, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we're all like, hey, you know, it's, it's all cool. But Noah gets drunk, and man, as far as we're concerned, he's a reprobate. I mean, this is the human condition. This is why we're so messed up. We want to just act like we never did anything wrong, right? But even so... Noah lived all those many hundreds of years and remained righteous until Abraham was 58 years old. He was still teaching a yeshiva. Ladies and gentlemen, that's how people need to know us. They didn't know us by our fruit. And our fruit is not moments of mistakes because that's called being human. Our fruit is what do we do before and what do we do after and what is the sum total of our life? That is where Hashem needs to know us. What is our fruit? And may our fruit be the character of God, merciful, merciful, full of mercy, full of compassion, full of love, full of kindness, full of being cared. And frankly, the sages point out, this is the whole point of mitzvah keeping. The whole point of keeping the law of Moses is to create within us that character. It may be so. End of our Aliyah today. Think good and it will be good. Thank you so much for being with me today. Please remember to contribute to our uh, community here at Sar Shalom Synagogue and Lapid Judaism. Your tithes and offerings are critical to making sure that these programs continue and, and, and most importantly, the light of God's Torah and the light of Messiah Yeshua continue. So thank you for being faithful in that. And please don't, uh, don't ever think that you're not important because you are very important. Your tithes, your offerings, your prayers, your support, your participation is all critical to the mission. So God bless you. Thank you so much for being a part of this. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow for the third Aliyah of uh, Noah.